You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Psalm 66. The French uh, Roman Catholic Pascal, in his Penzies, says this about our subject this morning. Being unable to cure death, wretchedness, and ignorance, people have decided in order to be happy not to think about such things. We are thinking about the unthinkable today. I was assigned this topic. I didn't choose it. So um, the heaviness of it all I can, be, bl- can blame, be blamed on someone else. It's thinking about the unthinkable. Here's Pascal again. Being unable to cure death, wretchedness, and ignorance, people have decided in order to be happy not to think about such things. Uh, the Christian is different. Uh, Psalm 66 was an assigned reading at the Ginellette Thanksgiving table. The Genelettes are really good about gathering strays in, people who have no other place to go, and that's where we spent uh, Thanksgiving. Psalm 66, uh, if you were looking for a title, could be uh, Resilient Thanksgiving. It starts out with a sort of, uh, well, a call to exuberance. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. That's how it begins. And then in verse 6, the psalmist describes the redemption that Israel had experienced. Speaking of the Lord, he turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the waters on foot speaking both of the Red Sea and the Sea of Jordan, both at the beginning, the exodus of leaving Egypt, and then at the beginning of entering the Promised Land. Come, let us rejoice in him. He rules forever by his power. His eyes watch the nations. Let not the rebellious rise against him. Drop down to verse 10, and you get at the heart of the psalm, So often the message in the psalm is at the center of the psalm. We build, in Western thinking, we build to the end. Uh, The Hebrew mind focused on the middle. Uh, Kind of you rise up, and then the aftermath of the truth is explored. Verse 10, for you, God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs. You let people ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us to a place of abundance. The psalmist here in images describes the hardships that the people of Israel had been subjected to, oftentimes to their own doing, but also just by way of of suffering that they had experienced in fulfilling and doing God's will. 
As I said, Psalm 66 was assigned to us on Thanksgiving by the Genelettes. The Genelettes lost a baby at birth, lived for a few hours after birth. Uh, we knew them really well during that time. Uh, we were discussing in the car coming whether uh, Elizabeth, um, Grace Elizabeth, came after Franklin or before Franklin. They have William, Jackson, Franklin, and then Grace Elizabeth, who died at birth. And then Mary Grace. A lot of courage to keep going in that um, lineup. Uh, but you know, I would say that we were there for the memorial service for uh, Grace Elizabeth. The Ginolettes went through that deep and dark and difficult time, but I'd have to say they never missed a beat. Just that consistent, wonderful dependence on the Lord, lived out, uh, wonderful relating to the boys in the midst of that grief, wonderful way of incorporating others into allowing to be comforted and encouraged in the midst of it. So there's some poignancy in choosing Psalm 66 around the Thanksgiving table. For you, God, tested us. And the psalmist doesn't explore the oppressors, doesn't explore the uh, uh, whatever uh, affliction the people of Israel were experiencing, trying to find a source. They just go all the way to the sovereign Lord. God is sovereign over all of this. So God, you tested us. Not Babylon, not Assyria, not, I mean, those could have been mentioned, for they were very true. But you, God, tested us. The psalmist ends, verse 16 is the beginning of a turn. Come and hear all you who fear God. Come and hear all you who fear God. And this is what I think you've been exploring. Are these fears, fearful parenting, in the light of the fear of God? And this is the fundamental theological truth that we wrestle with in these uh, terms. The fear of God versus uh, our fears. On your sheet here, um, there's two quotes that just uh, I felt like I wanted to put down. Uh, I once performed as a parent. Now I am a parent. And uh, that was in this book by Jerry Sitzer. Uh, for many years, a uh, theology professor who just retired from Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington. And he's written a number of books, but boy, he was in the zone on this one. Uh, Grace Disguised uh, describes their experience as a family when uh, coming back from a native Indian reservation with his family, spending the day kind of uh, with the culture of Native Americans, and they were hit by a drunk driver. Um, 
His wife, mother, and daughter were killed in the accident. He was surprisingly unscathed. He was driving and wandered around in the midst of what was just a devastation. This book is so good because it's not just his loss, but he describes it uh, in such a way that he's dealing with all of our losses. This is a really powerful book. I think we've probably given this book away more than any other book. Uh, and that line, I once performed as a parent, now I am a parent, was certainly, in Jerry's case, a well-earned statement. The second quote, a parent's main job is not to be a parent, but to be a person. And I do think that uh, the best form of parenting is when we are, before our children, persons of God. We're not trying to be something that we're not. We're just honest and open and genuine with God and with our children. What have we signed up for? So uh, I've asked my children this past week uh, how they would respond to the worst case scenario. Uh, and uh, I asked Kennerly, who's 36, uh, what she uh, comes to mind. And there's two things. I'm going to the mention. The first one is this: this C.S. Lewis quote. What have we signed up for? This is in Lewis's Four Loves. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully, round with hobbies and little luxuries, avoid all entanglements, lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, <laughs> irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So in a way, we've signed up for a struggle. We've signed up for heartbreak. Number one, the fear of the Lord, parenting, and the narrative of hope. Uh, Peter Craigie, a great uh, psalmist who uh, was doing all 150 psalms, but between his second volume and his third volume was killed in a car accident. Uh, and he writes this, The fear of the Lord is indeed the foundation of life the key to joy in life and long and happy days. But it's not a guarantee that life will be always easy, devoid of the difficulties that may seem to mar so much of human existence. It may mend the broken heart, but it does not prevent the heart from being broken. I, you know, going back to Pascal's, uh, Pascal's quote, thinking about the unthinkable, I do think it's part of our spiritual discipline to think about the unthinkable. 
In 2013, Cameron and Lauren faced the worst fear. Uh, and I'll tell you, uh, Cam's book is really just excellent. I, and I, I'm not saying that, Lauren, because you're here um, or because I'm on tape. I, again, I've given this book out. In fact, I had to buy this book because I had given my copy away. Uh, and I quoted this. Uh, my last class in pastoral theology was on resilience as pastors. How as pastors can you spend 30 or 40 years in ministry and, and not burn out? but love the Lord all the more deeply. And uh, I read to my class uh, these paragraphs. Cam has just described uh, the, uh, the call from Lauren on Monday, more, uh, Monday or uh, I think it was Monday, um, in which uh, telling that they had discovered little Cam, three-year-old Cam, uh, dead in the, in the bed. And he writes, the first half of my dreadful daydreams had become reality. I had imagined this moment hundreds of times. Now here was the point of departure between God and me. Here was the moment when my faith would crumble. In my imagination of doom, here was when I would curse God, resign from ministry and pursue a life of self-interest as a bitter, faithless man. But the Lord put a word in my mouth that surprised me. When Lauren delivered the tragic news, I said to her, Lauren, Christ is risen from the dead. God is good. This doesn't change the fact. God gave me faith and hope which I stood squarely in the middle of my worst. And he goes on to describe how that's the truth of the gospel, the truth of God, the truth of salvation that anchored his soul. There are some truths that mean nothing to a person who is gasping for existential air. When tears seem to flow continuously in your life, the nuances of the Trinity or the particulars of a certain end times theory do nothing to comfort. However, other biblical concepts can walk a person back off the metaphorical ledge when jumping seems so reasonable and appealing. One night I sat down and wrote down all these comforting theological principles as a personal creed. I began to realize that the Lord had embedded these individual truths in my heart that collectively constructed a narrative, this narrative of hope, under which I could live during my worst. This narrative gave me hope. Several months ago, a woman in the church in San Diego where my kids minister uh, lost her child at birth, brought to full term. Uh, and Becca, her husband's a Navy pilot, and uh, they're both really solid believers. But two weeks ago, she called Kennerly and said, I just have waves of doubt. Um, I, my life is anchored in Christ. That's not my concern, but she just said, I, I'm, I'm sort of like doubting everything. 
Um, I suggested to Kennerly, sending, therefore I have hope. And uh, it arrived and she gave it last Sunday to Becca. Becca called her later that day and said, I've read half the book, it's just what I need. I know there is a kind of, hmm, I don't wanna go there impulse in all of us. I just don't wanna go there. Um, but I do think that a kind of preparation, an understanding, a, an exposure, an openness to, to consider, to pray, to think in these terms is really important. I know the book of Job is hardly anybody's favorite book, but it's worth understanding and getting into. Um, on the study sheet, I quote from Job in the third chapter, what I feared has come upon me, what I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, but only turmoil. And I don't think, you know, the, exploring the worst case scenario in our minds will um, never alleviate us of that kind of pain but it's the reality of getting through all of that pain that is the concern, coming out on the other side. Again, Cam, uh, just before number two there, on our personal Good Friday, and I, uh, you know, I, I kind of believe in strong, I, I believe that we live with Gethsemane encounters. I believe that each of us has our own passion narrative all of us take up a cross and follow Jesus. Uh, I don't think every form of suffering and difficulty is necessarily a cross, but I do think how you respond to it can turn that life trial into a trial of faith, as I suggest there. But again, Cam, on our personal Good Friday, we could see in the background of our own miniature cross the helpful image of the future Easter Sunday where we could walk out of our tomb of misery as healed people. I find it really interesting meeting Christians who have really gone through various forms of hell, and yet you really don't know that in terms of the kind of uh, faithfulness and joy and... and uh, just the sense of being blessed by God. Uh, now, I also know Christians who have experienced actually very little suffering uh, by their own admission and feel fairly miserable. So it's kind of an interesting kind of dynamic uh, to, uh, to observe. In the box there, I, I asked Jeremiah, who's 41, our oldest, and he has Liam and Madeline, um, I said, Jeremiah, what do you do when you think about the worst case scenario? And I think, generally speaking, I think almost all of us would feel that the worst case scenario is the loss of a child. Um, the greatest impact may be the loss of a spouse. And the more enduring suffering may be the loss of a spouse, but what would really hurt us the most would be the loss of a child. And I was talking this out with Jeremiah. Um, 
all of our conversations with my children are not this heavy. Um, <laughs> I assure you. But his response immediate was, I only got it out of my mouth. Every day you give your child back to God, Dad. Abraham gave up Isaac. I give up Liam and Madeline. He's our poet and our English lit prof. And, uh, you know, when he says every day, I kind of take him literally. I do think he does that every day. Turning life's trials into the trials of faith. Uh, this is a great quote from Jerry in his book, A Grace Disguised. <clears throat> never have I felt so broken, yet never have I been so whole. Never have I been so aware of my weakness and vulnerability, <clears throat> yet never have I been so content and felt so strong. Never has my soul been more dead, yet never has my soul been more alive. What I once considered mutually exclusive, sorrow and joy, pain and pleasure, grief and gratitude, have become parts of a greater whole. My soul has been stretched. Above all, I have become aware of the power of God's grace and my need for it. The second thing that my daughter said was, you know, we live in very, a very sheltered life. Um, and that's true. Um, uh, we've been to Ghana five times training pastors, four times to Mongolia, two times to Cambodia. We spent a year in Barranquilla, uh, just out of college, and I lived for... Uh, a, a summer in Barranquilla, and I lived for a year in Taiwan, and all of those places, the vulnerability of physical uh, life is so much greater. Um, the, the presence of death, the presence of disease, we live in a relatively sheltered kind of environment. I remember when my uh, mother was dying, and uh, we went into her apartment and found her um, unconscious. I called 911. I was in a blur, I think, um, but it almost seemed like when I put down the receiver of the phone, there was a landline, um, I heard the sirens. The downtown San Diego, and within five minutes, they were there. Well, that's kind of unbelievable. It's amazing. <laughs> Within five minutes, you have four or five people medically trained there to help. Um, pain and suffering are often seen as intrusion in an otherwise good life. We inhabit a world that is sheltered from much of the world's pain and suffering. Other cultures live with a greater sense of the immediacy of suffering. David Getz, uh, this is an old book now, Death by Suburb, 2006. Uh, it is a really good book, though. Um, I'm not implying that 2006 books are not helpful. Um, you don't have to be immediate. Uh, 
But just giving you a flavor of this book, because he challenges our sort of suburban spirituality. The suburbs tend to produce inverse spiritual cripples. Suburbia is a flat world in which the edges are clearly defined and the mysterious oceans rarely explored. Too much of the good life ends up being toxic, deforming us spiritually. The drive to succeed, to make one's children succeed, overpowers the best intentions to live more reflectively, no matter the piety. Should it be any surprise that the true life in Christ never germinates? Goetz argues that the suburban environment of security, efficiency, and opportunities, and the overindulged self morphs into routines and expectations that shield us from the larger world. And we know that the biblical worldview is ever mindful of the inevitability of suffering. In Romans 5, we boast in the hope of the glory of God, and we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Paul is saying here, we glory in, we hope in the glory of God. We glory in the glory of God. We also glory in our sufferings. And that's because of the peace of Christ affording us salvation. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's hard to read the Bible, hard to pray the Psalms, without running up against a worldview that is a whole lot more serious than we want to be. Uh, this culture, I would characterize, as Neil Postman does in his book, seriously unserious. We have a passion for being unserious, for needing to be entertained, needing some sort of escape. Um, My last point, uh, the Helmut Thielichy, uh quote, I'll read it, um, because I think it helps. It helps lead into um, developing a resilience. You will never be able to see the goodness of God. Helmut Thielichy was a World War post-World War II pastor in Germany who had remained faithful to Christ, continued preaching after the, uh, after the war, you will never be able to see the goodness of God with a jealous eye. When envy seizes upon me, I must stop this nerve-wracking calculations as to whether God is giving more to somebody else than to me. Instead, I should thank him for what he has given to me and pray that he may also support and comfort that other person in those secret trials and troubles of which I have no knowledge at all. Third point, boasting our, boosting our spiritual immune system and resilient parenting. How can we kind of prepare ourselves? And I, this is not an invitation to becoming morbid or overly serious or depressed. 
Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to the Lord. When my mother died, we gathered up her stuff, and most of it I didn't even sort out or look through. And then a couple years ago, I started thinking, well, maybe I should go through these papers. (laughs) Um, And I found a journal that she kept when I was 18. Um, And she describes this kind of uh, what I would call sort of an early warning system that the Lord gave her um, in her own words. uh, Sometimes during morning devotions, the Lord seemed to be impressing me with the thought that something was ahead that would not be easy to bear. I was moved to cry whenever I sensed this, and then I would hear these words spoken to my heart, I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go. I felt the Lord reminding me, I must require much. And she explained how the Bible plan that she was following directed her to Job. And she thought, no, I'm not going to study Job. (laughs) And then I had joined a book club, a Christian book club, and wouldn't you know it, the book that came in the mail after she... You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.